As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It's Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is episode number fifty-one, and today we're talking about number two. Yep, you guessed it. We're talking about poop today. So, get ready. What started out as going to be a very simple topic, really, I think, is turned out to be one of my best ever. So, I'm actually really excited to share this with you today. So let's first just do a brief anatomy and physiology review. So we have the main organs of digestion and elimination. So of course, there's the stomach. I'm not going to start all the way up in the mouth with the chewing and all of that, but we'll get down to the nitty gritty. In the stomach, we have the secretion of the hydrochloric acid and the pepsin turning that food bolus into chyme. From there, it's going to drop down into the duodenum. And this is a key component in digestion. That chyme is going to get further broken down with enzymes from the pancreas, the liver, and the gallbladder. Then it's going to go from the duodenum into the jejunum. Most of your nutrients are going to be absorbed here. And then from the jejunum into the ileum, where any remaining nutrients are absorbed. Then we go into the large intestine. And if you think about the function of the large intestine, you can use the acronym APES, A-P-E-S. A is for absorption, P is for protection, E is for elimination, and S is for secretion. So basically the large intestine, it's going to be helping maintain good gut flora. It's going to be absorbing water, minerals, maybe a few vitamins, and forming that waste product to be eliminated. So there are a lot of factors that affect elimination. Medications, activity, mobility, fluid status, diet, fiber intake especially, inflammation, the patient's age, anxiety, depression, pain, illnesses, pregnancy, liver disease, all kinds of things. Some of them cause constipation. Some of them cause diarrhea. So we'll talk about each of those in turn and some of the factors that cause both constipation and diarrhea. So in the acute care setting, which is the only place that I've ever worked, so I can only really speak to that from an experience standpoint, the goal is for a patient to have a bowel movement, well, every day would be ideal. More than three times a day, it starts to get a little bit too much because maybe they're having diarrhea. But if they go more than two or three days, we start to get more aggressive with our bowel care. So for a general point of reference, daily is good. Every one to two days is is decent. Every three days, not so great. If the patient's going four or five days, you got to do something and you got to get in there and, and get aggressive. 
So talking about constipation, which I would say you probably deal with a lot more as a nurse than diarrhea, probably because constipation just has so many other problems and things that could be wrong with the patient or could go wrong with the patient because of the constipation. So let's talk about the causes. One of the biggest causes is immobility or decreased activity. So you've got a lot of immobility, especially after surgery when the patient's in a lot of pain, or maybe you've got chronically ill patients who are very deconditioned and not really getting out of bed and doing much. Decreased fluids, so if someone comes in dehydrated, they are very likely to be constipated as well. Even just ignoring that urge to go, this happens maybe I think more in children, they ignore that urge to go because maybe they don't want to stop playing or whatever. And then as that stool sits there in the colon, the colon's going to keep absorbing that water and the stool is just going to get drier and drier and harder to remove. Lots of medications can cause constipation and you'll need to know what these are so that as you're doing your care plans and even taking exams, you can clue into some of the problems your patient could have because they're taking these meds. And I would say iron is a really big one. That definitely comes up a lot on exams. So iron and FYI, iron can cause the stools to be dark. So don't be tricked by that one if it comes up on an exam. Opioids definitely can cause constipation. Maybe you've seen some of the commercials on TV about opioid-induced constipation. Well, that's the reason. Even laxative abuse can cause constipation, where people become so dependent on the laxatives that they can't go without it. So they have constipation unless they're using a laxative. Diuretics can cause constipation because of the large fluid volume losses that can occur. Anticholinergics and Parkinson's meds are also guilty, as are antacids containing calcium and or aluminum. There are probably a lot of others, but those are the key ones that come to mind. For your nursing school exams and clinicals, I would say iron, opioids, diuretics, and laxative abuse would probably be the ones that would come up the most often on an exam question or in a clinical scenario. Certain issues with anatomy and physiology can cause constipation or make or the constipation can cause certain problems with anatomy and physiology. So for instance, this would be things like a bowel obstruction, bowel strictures, anal fissures, ileuses, weakened pelvic muscles. All those types of things can contribute to altered elimination with constipation. Hypothyroidism, hypocalcemia, hypokalemia, diabetes, hyperparathyroidism can all lead to constipation as well. So if your patient has any of those issues, clue into the fact that they may need extra help with elimination. And another thing that could be a really big cause of constipation is colon cancer, rectal cancers, or any cancers where the tumor itself is impeding on the digestive tract. We also have, I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, 
rectosily or rectosily. I'm not really sure how it's pronounced because I've only ever read it. It's R-E-C-T-O-C-E-L-E. And this is when the rectum bulges and pushes into the back wall of the vagina. So that can cause some pretty significant problems with elimination. Also note that neurological injuries and neurological disease can cause constipation. If your patient has a spinal cord injury, they most likely will have elimination challenges. I find that the best thing to do is to ask these patients what their home routine is. And I guarantee you, most of them will have a very specific home routine that they follow religiously. My best advice is to mimic that routine as much as you can in the hospital setting. For instance, I had a patient recently with this problem. And so I asked her, what is your home routine? And she told me what time she goes, what she uses to help herself go, how she gets to the commode. She could get to the commode with a like a sling or a lift. And so I made a note to try to mimic that routine as much as possible. Other neurological disease or problems that your patients could have that would affect elimination are multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, a patient with a stroke, any brain injury. You always want to assess what their home routine is if they have one. And if they don't, helping them come up with a good bowel care regimen would be a wonderful nursing intervention to do. And then if you've ever had a baby, you know that pregnancy can cause all kinds of issues in your body, and one of them is constipation. So I would say in the acute care setting, one of the things that I've noticed to be very consistent as regards to constipation is your bedridden patient who's chronically bedridden. Maybe they have a tracheostomy and a peg tube and they're very deconditioned or they have severe injury and cannot mobilize. They also often may have chronic pain and are taking opioids for that chronic pain. So these patients are going to need aggressive, assertive, consistent bowel care. And they'll probably come to you with assertive bowel care already part of their regimen. And this can be um, a range of things. So bowel care in general is a spectrum. So typically with patients, we start with a stool softener like Colace, and then we amp up the intensity if they fail to go. So Colace is common. You'll see that on probably, if not all of your patients in the acute care setting, most of them, especially if they're taking any opioids post-surgically or whatever. Senecot is another very common one, pretty mild. Then we start getting into the, the big guns, as I call them. Milk of mag is definitely more assertive than Colace or Senna. And uh, glycerin suppositories or Colace suppository, that would be one of the next things to try. It depends on what your physician team and what your hospital uses as their bowel care regimen. Usually it's a protocol with a stepwise administration. If this doesn't work, then give this. If this doesn't work, then give this. So this may not be the order that you see it in, but it's typically what I see. And then if they're still constipated, we look at the really big guns, and that's the lactulose and magcitrate. Enemas probably before those, but enemas could be thrown in there as well. Patients with 
this chronic constipation that are very uh, decreased mobility, perhaps bedridden, are at very, very high risk for an impaction. So let's talk briefly about the signs and symptoms of an impaction and what you're going to do about it. So the biggest hallmark sign of an impaction is constipation. Patient may also feel a lot of rectal discomfort. They may avoid eating and have anorexia. Nausea and vomiting, very common. Abdominal pain as well. And just because they have an impaction and you see diarrhea, don't think that, oh, they must not have an impaction because they're stooling. No, actually the diarrhea can seep around, that liquid stool can seep around the impacted stool and still be eliminated. So if all you're seeing is this liquid stool, but your patient is still complaining of all of these other issues, they may have an impaction. They also may have urinary frequency because that full colon could be pressing on the bladder. So they're not able to get a full bladder because the space is being taken up by all this stool. So they're having to urinate more often. So the treatment for an impaction is a digital disimpaction where you get in there and get that stool out manually with the finger. One of the things that you'll need to know if you're going to be tested on this or write a care plan about it is that you will be stimulating the vagus nerve most likely with your digital impaction, uh, disimpaction rather. And you want to watch for that activation of the parasympathetic nervous system anytime that vagus nerve is stimulated because it can cause a bradycardia. So monitor their pulse while you're doing this, okay? Little tip there for you. So some other complications with constipation are hemorrhoids. Now hemorrhoids can bleed and they can bleed a lot in some patients. The hemorrhoids themselves are painful so the hemorrhoids can actually exacerbate the constipation because the patient doesn't want to go because it hurts. So they hold it. So then the stool gets more solid and less um, full of fluid and harder to pass. So kind of a vicious cycle there with the hemorrhoids. Anal fissures can occur, which are those tears. A patient could even have rectal prolapse or, as we mentioned earlier, that bowel obstruction, which cannot be taken lightly, guys. So bowel obstruction can lead to a loss of oxygen getting to those tissues, leading to tissue death, basically what we call an ischemic bowel. You could have perforations with that, bad infection, bad peritonitis. So constipation is not just a, oh, no big deal. It can be a really big deal and you need to intervene appropriately. So what are some of the interventions for constipation. We talked about some of the medicines. We'll talk about them again here. But before you even give medication, which of course requires a physician order, what are some things that you as the nurse can do using your own nursing judgment? So if your patient, as long as they're not on any kind of a special diet that would preclude this, you can give them prune juice, which should be stocked in the fridge. Coffee is a great, great uh, laxative. I'm using air quotes there. Um, you can encourage PO fluids if the patient has not been drinking a lot and you suspect their constipation is due to 
being a bit dehydrated, you can encourage fluids and you can help them increase mobility. Mobility is going to get that peristalsis going. You can help them uh, increase fiber intake by um, letting them know on their their dietary choices that they have in the hospital and giving them education on what to eat at home and, if possible, decrease their opioid use. Maybe their pain is mild. They don't need morphine. They just need some Tylenol or an ice pack or heat or something like that. And then you would probably move on to the medication regimen, like I was saying, the bowel care regimen. The colase is that stool softener. It's mild. Most people do fine with it. It doesn't cause explosive diarrhea like some things. Senecott, milk of magnesia can cause more of that urgent, I gotta go. And some people find that unpleasant, but you gotta get the stool out. So sometimes you do have to use, you know, more aggressive medications, suppositories. Again, enemas, we're going to talk about enemas here in a minute. Polyethylene glycol, lactulose, and then the mother of all laxatives, mag citrate. So my one experience with mag citrate was pretty much a nightmare and I still remember it in vivid detail and it was probably six or seven years ago. I was a very new nurse working on the night shift and my patient was constipated and so I had to take care of it. So I got mag citrate for my patient, got that ordered and gave the mag citrate. I believe this patient was chronic peg trach kind of patient very large, very mobile, had really bad constipation, and she was extremely uncomfortable, and I was trying to help. So I gave them hexitrate, and this poor lady, explosive diarrhea, absolutely everywhere. And I think it took like six of us to get this, this gal cleaned up and comfortable again. And I still remember that in the middle of the night, just having to <laughs> help this poor gal deal with the abdominal explosion that I caused with the magcitrate. But you know what? She felt a lot better afterwards, but it was probably not the most comfortable situation for her during that. So anyway, magcitrate, my lesson to you is just be prepared for the onslaught of stool that is coming your way. And a little tip that I can give that you'll learn as you work with patients in the hospital is if you're going to be giving something like mag citrate or really any laxative and your patient's bed bound and they're not going to be able to get on a bedpan perhaps or up to the commode, get double chucks on the bed. Okay. Don't be afraid to put chucks from shoulder to knees because stool can seep everywhere, especially if it's liquid and then get a towel or something that you can roll up and place between their thighs to act as a little bit of a dam so that the stool, as it comes out, just kind of builds up into a well there, especially if it's liquid and doesn't just get all over the bed or the floor. It'll help protect their dignity as well if they haven't made a giant mess. And then, I know it sounds kind of weird, but you can use the wall section to then get a lot of that liquid stool 
out of that well that you created, and it makes cleaning up the patient a lot easier. And we'll talk about that a little bit further on about the importance of protecting your patient's dignity and privacy as you're taking care of these very intimate and somewhat for them embarrassing situations. Another quick note about the bowel care regimen is that renal patients will have what's called renal bowel care. So if you are looking for bowel care on your patient, but they have chronic kidney disease, you want to make sure that the physician knows that this patient has this issue because they will be using a different protocol, basically avoiding things like uh Things that contain electrolytes like milk of mag, FOS, um, also avoiding mineral oil enemas because that affects absorption of things, and polyethylene glycol. There may be others, but just the takeaway is renal bowel care is a specialized protocol, and it will avoid things that could cause your patient any more difficulty than what they currently have with their renal disease. So let's talk about enemas, and you guys are going to be tested a lot on enemas, and honestly, in the clinical setting, well, I can only say in the intensive care unit, we don't give that many enemas. I imagine it might be something you would give a lot in a subacute facility, a chronic care kind of place, or home care. So it's definitely something that you need to understand and it might be a lot of something that your patients are doing at home and you want to be able to educate them on how to do it. So you can definitely expect enema questions on your exams. There are essentially three types of enemas. There's cleansing enemas, oil retention enemas, and then there's medication enemas. So the cleansing enemas, there's like water. You could give normal saline as an enema, though I've never seen it. Um soap suds enema and whatnot. So we'll talk about each of these. So a water enema is considered a hypotonic enema. And basically it stimulates the GI tract and that water gets into the stool, helps to loosen and soften it. This is for adults only. We don't give these to kids. Because of that hypotonic solution, it can cause circulatory compromise if you give too many. The max is three for the most part, but defer to what your textbook and your instructor and your hospital say, or your uh, physician leading your medical team says for how many. I've seen one only, I've seen max of three. So that would be just a plain water enema. Then there's normal saline, which you could use instead. It is isotonic, or you could use a hypertonic solution for people that can't tolerate a lot of fluid, maybe someone who has fluid overload already, this hypertonic solution, if you remember, is going to pull fluid into the colon. Remember that water follows salt. It's going to pull fluid into the colon and hopefully soften that stool and get it out. Subsets enema irritates the bowel just enough to stimulate peristalsis. So that's the idea behind that. And then next would be that oil retention enema. This would be your fleet enema. This is a small volume enema, and the oil basically softens the stool so that it's more easily passed. Then we have our medicated enemas. The two most common that I see are K-exalate, which is given to patients who have dangerously high potassium levels, and maybe they're not able to swallow the K-exalate. So you give it to them as an enema. Also, lactulose, which is used in hepatic encephalopathy for your patients whose ammonia levels are too high. 
Lactulose is going to bind up that ammonia into the stool and eliminate it. So those two medicated enemas are probably the most common ones that I've seen. You can use what's called a red robin. It's a Robinson catheter. It's red, so it's called a red robin to instill these enemas. And they're considered retention enemas in that you put the medication in and usually it's You'll get your medication and then you'll mix it with enough water to create about a liter of fluid and you instill it with the hopes that the patient can hold it in for a while and then um, release it. And hopefully your potassium comes out with it, lowering their serum potassium levels and or the ammonia if you're treating the hepatic encephalopathy. Couple things to know about enemas is how high to hang the enema bag. So I've seen 12 to 18 inches. I've seen 18 to 24 inches. Just know that the higher you hang the bag, the faster the solution will flow into the rectum. And if it's flowing too quickly, this can cause discomfort to your patient. So lowering the bag lowers the flow rate. So some problems you might encounter with enema administration If your patient starts to suddenly develop intense abdominal pain or you notice rigidity and abdominal distension, you need to stop the intimate right away and notify the MD. This could be a sign of a perforation. If they're complaining that their abdomen is cramping, that's either the solution is too cold or you're running it in too quickly. So check the temperature of the solution and maybe slow the rate of the enema installation. And then if they are bleeding, it could be hemorrhoids. You need to assess the amount of the bleeding. Let somebody know, let the nurse know, and let the doc know. It may not be, um, it might just be a hemorrhoid, but if there's a lot of blood, then there's something else going on. Somebody needs to take a look at this patient. Couple contraindications to giving your patient an enema are if they have glaucoma or irritable bowel disease, or increased intracranial pressure. So if your patient has any of those and an enema is ordered, you would want to clarify that before administering. Another quick note, if your patient does have glaucoma or increased intracranial pressure or cardiovascular disease and they're constipated, you definitely want to treat this because you don't want them straining and bearing down when they try to pass their solid waste because this can increase for the glaucoma patient and the intraocular pressure for your patient with increased intracranial pressure. It's going to make it go up even higher. And then for your patient with cardiovascular disease, you don't want to put any strain on the heart. Bearing down does stimulate that vagus nerve and they could have a potentially deadly bradycardia. So these patients should all be able to go easily and you're going to give bowel care to help them do that. So let's talk about the other side of the coin diarrhea. So diarrhea, I would say it's pretty common in the acute care setting, but it's not typically as aggressively treated as constipation because a lot of times the diarrhea is simply a side effect of some of the things that we're doing for the patient, such as giving them antibiotics. So if your patient says that they're allergic to Rocephin, for instance, because it gives them diarrhea. That's not an allergy. Typically, that is just a side effect and it happens. Enteral nutrition, aka tube feeding, definitely causes diarrhea. 
Food allergies, food intolerances can cause it. Any disease of the bowel, irritable bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's colitis, any of those things can cause diarrhea as well. The bowel prep for testing the patient with a colonoscopy, you give them the bowel prep, they're going to go because they have to have a clean bowel. Sometimes they'll give bowel prep before abdominal surgery if it's a planned surgery. That's going to cause diarrhea, but that's the intended effect. And then just know that if your patient has a GI bleed, blood is very irritating to the intestinal tract, and it is going to cause the patient to have increased peristalsis and diarrhea. Now, if your patient has C. diff, they're definitely going to have diarrhea. That is the hallmark symptom. It also has a very distinct odor. I can't really describe it, but once you come into contact with it, it will be forever burned into your memory. With C. diff diarrhea, we don't necessarily want to slow down the diarrhea. We don't want to treat the diarrhea. We want the body to get that toxin out as quickly as possible. So we don't try to make the stool thicker like we would with, say, a diarrhea caused by an antibiotic. We just want the waste to come out so that the disease can pass. So again, the treatments for diarrhea, you can thicken up the stool with something like banana flakes. Uh, there's something called Imodium, a medication that can help with diarrhea. There's probiotics that we give when the patient's on antibiotics to help keep the good gut flora in place. So all of those things can help your patient who for whom the diarrhea is troublesome. So one of the things that you will have to do in your charting is assess the stool and chart your stool assessment. So I just want to clue you into a few things that could mean there might be something else going on with your patient. So if the stool is black, really sticky, we call it tarry, black tarry stool, that is a sign of a GI bleed. Your patient with a GI bleed could also have stool that is very dark. Maybe it looks like there's coffee grounds in there. That is also a sign of a GI bleed or bright red, which would be frank bleeding that is actively happening right now. Again, GI bleed. So keep an eye out for those things. If your patient's stool is very pale, maybe kind of grayish, maybe you can see some fat in it. I will probably mispronounce it, but that is steatorrhea when there's fat in the stool. And that can be caused by a whole bunch of different problems. Probably the most common would be liver disease, but you could also have it in any kind of pancreatic insufficiency. Patients with cystic fibrosis will often have steatorrhea. Any malabsorption in the intestines, like with celiac disease or bacterial overgrowth or short bowel syndrome, irritable bowel disease could all have this problem. Patient after a cholecystectomy could have this or a patient with a bile duct obstruction. So if you see that, just know that there could be other things going on with your patient. Again, that very persistent diarrhea with that very foul odor could be C. diff. So you would want to send a sample off for that. And diarrhea that's not really accompanied by any gastric upset could simply just be the patient is on tube feeding or an antibiotic. And the last thing I want to talk with you about regarding my poop podcast is 
really working with your patient to protect their privacy and their dignity as you're helping them with elimination. Using a bedpan is probably not the most wonderful experience for people. Having an quote, accident in the bed or being so sick that you just have to go in the bed for a lot of patients. I can't imagine how awful that must feel. Um, So I just really want you to, when you're cleaning up your patients, make sure they know that you're not grossed out by it. You're not offended by it. You're just there to help them get clean and respect their dignity and their privacy as you do so. So when I'm talking to my patients, I might say, I'm going to help you get cleaned up or something like that, or I'm going to help you get clean and comfortable. And I just don't let it show on my face if it's really foul. I do everything I can to act like I haven't even noticed because it's just already so embarrassing for so many patients. And I would hate to add to that. If you need to wear a mask, wear a mask. Do whatever you need to do to help your patient retain their dignity and their privacy at a really vulnerable time for them. A lot of times your patient will be in the hospital and they have to go and they will just insist that they get up to the commode. I'm not using a bedpan. I'm not using a bedpan. I hear that over and over again. And you have to really use your judgment for this. A lot of times patients will have strict bed rest orders, and then it's just not even a topic of discussion. The doctor says you're not to get out of bed. It's not safe. But sometimes you have to use your nursing judgment to know whether it's safe to get your patient out of bed or not. So I would say, especially as a student, if you are at all unsure Ask the nurse or consider some of the things that might be going on with your patient. So if their blood pressure is too low, I would not get them out of bed. If their hemoglobin is very low, they're on bed rest. If they have an injury or an unrepaired fracture, they ain't getting up. Sorry. If they have respiratory compromise with any kind of increased activity, they cannot get out of bed and get to the commode. They can't breathe well when they're moving around. If they have cardiac instability, probably not a good idea to get them up. Or any kind of a neurological injury, I would want physical therapy to work and assess their abilities before I got them out of bed myself. So when in doubt, use a bedpan. The best advice I have for this is just ensure the patient that it's for their safety, it's for their well-being, it's hopefully temporary as they work on getting better. But for now, you know, because you're worried about what could possibly happen if they get up, they need to use a bedpan. If you get them on the bedpan and then sit them up really high, that helps get everything kind of into as good of alignment as you possibly can get sitting in a bed trying to go to the bathroom. And then I cover their lower body with a blanket or a sheet so they feel like they have some privacy. If it's safe for me to leave the room, I'll leave the room and tell them, you know, press the call light when you're finished or I'll come back in five or 10 minutes. I try not to leave them on for longer than 10 minutes because it can leave a mark on the skin. So again, just giving your patient that privacy and the protection of their dignity at all times. Okay, so that is enough about poop. Wasn't that interesting? I was really, um, really happy with how that turned out. And something that came up today, I just wanted to leave you guys with a little tip, is somebody was commenting 
on my Instagram about how all the reading in nursing school is really stressing them out. And I had the same problem. And one of the things that we did first semester when we had so much reading to do, and I really felt like there was just too much of it, but we quickly discovered which classes you had to read the text and which classes you could more get your information from lecture. And that was our research, not research class, our theory class, like history of nursing, nursing theory, all of that. A lot of those questions came from the textbook, and it was the most boring book ever to read. We cared about med surge and pathophysiology and, and all of that, but we also had to take this theory class. So got into a group of about 10 or 12 people, and we each took a chapter. And so when it was our turn to do that chapter, we would make a very detailed outline of the chapter and then share that with the group. So really, each person only had to read one chapter in full detail. And then every week or whatever, you would get the outlines for the other chapters. And it just made things so much faster. It was absolutely brilliant. I think we might have done that for a couple of classes. I know we did it for theory. We may have also done it for gerontology as well, possibly mental health. I can't remember. But anyway, it was incredibly helpful. If you're getting bogged down with reading for those types of classes, maybe make a little group where you do the outlining. It was genius. And then on a personal note, I know some of you like to know what's going on in my exciting life. So started my master's program again a few weeks back. And I had taken about a three-year break on that because I was sick a few years back, but I'm better now. So restarting my master's, and I just wrote a post about it. It went up end of September. So if you're interested in seeing how my MSN compares to my BSN, go to the website straightynursingstudent.com and check that out. I would say overall, vastly easier at this point anyway. I don't want to jinx it, but... I've got two classes, so technically I'm not going full, full-time. I'm going six units at a time, but I am working full-time and running an empire with the website and all of that. But um, I'm taking community health and advanced physical assessment. So at first, I really wasn't that excited about community health, but I went to my first lecture a couple weeks back, and I think it's going to actually be a very interesting class. I really like the idea of, of health promotion and illness prevention and community health really tackles that at such a broad level that I think there's a lot of great implications for it. And then advanced physical assessment has a clinical component. I have not yet learned what my clinical hours are or where they are, but when I do, I'll let you know. So that should be really interesting as well. So there you go. You guys are all updated. Thank you so much for spending your precious time here with me today, and I will see you back here in a couple of weeks. This podcast is brought to you by straightanursingstudent.com. Copyright Mo Media. find it hard to sleep at night then the sleep cove podcast can help you hi i'm christopher fitton the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind sleep cove sleep cove features sleep hypnosis meditations 
and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long.